0: Welcome to this special presentation of the unabridged audiobook of Afterlife, a rainy day investigation, on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs fiction podcast. Afterlife was inspired by a real-life investigation conducted by co-author and parapsychologist Lloyd Auerbach that was the case that made him believe in ghosts. Although Afterlife is book two in the series, you can enjoy it as a standalone story. However, you'll likely also want to listen to Near Death, The novel that introduces Dr. Jennifer Day, anthropology professor and parapsychologist, to her skeptical partner, former police detective, Nate Rainey. In Afterlife, Danny, a young boy, makes friends with the ghost of a woman, Maureen, who used to live in the house his family has moved into. He's the only one who can see and hear her. Maureen died 15 years earlier, trying to make her escape from a botched bank robbery, at which time she had millions of dollars in cash and valuables. Unfortunately, she can't remember where. But that's not going to stop her old partners from doing everything they can to find their long-lost treasure, no matter what the cost. If you enjoyed this free presentation, I hope you'll take a minute to post a review on Amazon, Audible, and Goodreads, as well as your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to listen to Near Death, along with my weekly short stories, here on Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs. And now, Part 12 of Afterlife, A Rainy Day Investigation By Rich Hosick, Arnold Rudnick, and Lloyd Auerbach Chapter 43 Marcia tidied up Danny's rum a bit as he slipped into bed and under the covers. She picked up the clothes he had discarded on the floor and placed them in the hamper in his closet, then picked up a crumpled napkin and made a note to vacuum the crumbs under his desk in the morning. Do you want a story tonight? she asked Danny. That's Okay. He answered. Maureen said she'd tell me one. Danny looked toward the foot of his bed. Marcia followed Danny's gaze and stared at the empty space where he was looking, willing herself to see what he saw, hoping that there really was a ghost and that her son wasn't experiencing hallucinations. She worried about what that might mean. One of the more frightening possibilities she found online was that he had a brain tumor. She shook it off and forced herself to smile at Danny. She leaned over and kissed him on the forehead. He was at the age where he was just starting to find this to be yucky. In a few years, he would be a teenager. That was hard to fathom. A few years after that, he'd be driving, and it wouldn't be long before he was off to college. But until then, she would kiss his forward every night until he made her stop. Good night, Danny. I love you. Love you too, Mom, he said in a way that foreshadowed a time not too far in the future when he would be reluctant to say that to her out loud as well. Marcia switched off the light as she walked out. She left the door open a crack so she'd be able to hear if he called out to her in the night. Then she lingered just outside, listening. Tell me about the gold mine, Danny said quietly to Maureen. Maureen moved so she was sitting on the side of Danny's bed. Again? she asked. Don't you want to hear about something else? I remember a story about a boy who finds a giant peach in his yard. Please, he begged. It's better than a story because it's a real adventure. Maureen smiled. All right. I'll tell you about how my friend Joanna got lost. Did you find her? Danny asked, a note of concern in his voice. Yes, we did. The story has a happy ending, Maureen assured him. You see, me and my friends liked exploring the woods and the mountains. We had a lot of secret places where we would play. The gold mine was just one of them. That's so cool, Danny said, fighting off a yawn. We thought so. It was my older cousin Jeremy who actually found it, and one day I heard him telling his friends about it. So I told my friends and we decided we would follow Jeremy to find out where it was. We were good at sneaking around in the woods. Me and Joanna and Carl from the next farm down used to play hide and seek all the time. So the next time Jeremy and his friends sneaked off to the mine, we followed them, then waited for them to leave before we checked it out ourselves. If you didn't know what you were looking for, you would pass it by. The entrance was narrow and hidden behind some bushes. Part of it was a natural cave. There was a big area just inside. The miners had leveled out the floor with dirt and started digging tunnels into the side of the mountain. Jeremy and his friends had taken some old lawn chairs and a small ice chest and set them up in there. I think they were scared to go into the tunnels. They were kind of small and tight. Carl had taken a gas lantern from their barn and I had managed to get a bunch of candles and matches. There were two tunnels off the main chamber, and we explored as much of it as we could. Part of it was filled with water, and we imagined there was a sea monster living there, so we stayed away. Good, Danny said, relieved. Maureen smiled. Danny had confessed he didn't like monsters, and that there might have been one living under the stairs at their own house. So she steered clear of telling him the particulars of the creature she and her friends had imagined living at the bottom of the mine. We also found out that the two tunnels actually connected to each other, and we found a wide spot in one of them and made our own little hideout that Jeremy and his friends didn't know about. We brought in some blankets and set up the candles. Carl had the idea to bring some hammers, too, so we could do our own gold mining. Did you find anything? Danny asked, fighting to keep his eyes open. Not really, but we dreamed about what we would buy if we did, like new bikes. How did Joanna get lost? Well, one day after we were doing a little mining, we were heading home and Joanna realized she had left a bracelet behind and wanted to go back and get it. I gave her a box of matches and the candle we used to get in and out, and we waited for her. But after about ten minutes, she didn't come back. Then it was fifteen minutes, then thirty. Danny's eyes had been closed for a while, but now they were wide open. What happened to her? We didn't know. We decided to go back and see if we could find her, but she hid the candle and we couldn't go very far before it got too dark to see. We called out to her, but she didn't answer. What did you do? Well, we were scared, so we ran back to my house and told my mother, and she called the police. We were so afraid that we were going to be in trouble. Then she called Carl's mom and Joanna's dad, and pretty soon there were a whole bunch of grown-ups there. They made us show them where the gold mine was. They brought in flashlights and lanterns and searched the whole mine, but she wasn't there. What happened to her? Well, a little while later, some of the grown-ups who were searching the woods around the mine found her. She was scared and confused, but other than that, she was okay. She was inside the mine and tripped and dropped the candle and the matches. She couldn't find them, so she tried to get up by feeling her way along the floor and walls. Eventually, she found her way out through a hidden entrance. but got lost trying to find our way back to us. Did you get in trouble? A little, Mostly it was my cousin Jeremy who got in trouble, and he was super mad at me for spoiling his hideout. The grown-ups got together and sealed up the entrance with cement so no one else could go in there and get lost. But we found the secret way in that Joanna used and played there the rest of the summer. What about the monster? Danny asked. The monster? In the water. Oh, well, he'll never get out now. I don't think we need to worry about the monster. Okay, good, Danny said relieved. Maureen? Can I ask you a question? Of course you can, she said. How come I'm the only one who can see and hear you? He asked. Maureen considered his question. It was one she had thought about herself. She had no idea why they had whatever connection they had, but being Danny's friend was comforting. When I was a little girl, I would always dream about when I would get married and have my own family. In one time, I made a wish at a wishing well that someday I would have a little boy. Since I died before I could have my own son, I guess being friends with you is the answer to my wish. Danny thought about her answer. I like that. I'm glad we're friends. Me too, Maureen said. Danny let his eyes close and he drifted off to sleep. Greg climbed the stairs and saw his wife leaning against the wall outside of Danny's room. She looked to him and he offered her a reassuring smile. Is he doing it again? Greg asked. Marcia nodded you're worried. He is so convinced she's real. Well, Dr. Day did say. Marcia cut him off with a look. I'm just saying, it does explain his behavior. What if it doesn't? Marcia asked. What if there's something wrong with Danny? I want him to see a professional, a medical professional. A psychiatrist? Greg asked. Marcia nodded. Okay, her husband agreed. I'll call Dr. Thorpe in the morning, see if she can refer someone. Thanks, Marcia said, reaching out to Greg for an embrace. He held her for a moment, then led her down the hall to their room. Chapter 44 The last light went out just before eleven o'clock. Dale watched the house from a spot on the hillside and the woods behind the foreman's home. It was a spot where he used to hang out when he was a teenager, waiting for Marine to be able to sneak away from her family. It was accessible by a fire road higher up on a ridge. The location was fairly flat, and Maureen would bring a blanket with her, and they would snuggle under the stars and talk about their dreams for the future. Dale had big plans. He wanted to start his own construction company. He saw the potential to develop the valley and figured he could get in on the ground floor and buy up some of the land off the highway and parlay it into a small development empire. Maureen would listen, smiling as Dale detailed his schemes and she would, in turn, imagine how she would stay at home with her children and pursue her dreams of being an artist. She wanted four kids, and they would live in an enormous house Dale would build for them, high on a hill overlooking the valley. They would make love, passionately and frantically, the way teenagers did, then gaze up at the stars or the moonlit clouds. Of course, life didn't turn out the way they had planned. Dale had partnered with a man he had met while working for another contractor. The man had contacts, people who might be willing to finance Dale's business plan. But he turned out to have his own business plan, one in which he leveraged the company they had built for his own benefit, excluding himself from any liability. In the end, Dale had lost his investment and found himself hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. It was devastating. Maureen had tried to reassure him that he could come back from this. People didn't blame him. They knew he had been swindled. But Dale saw no way forward without declaring bankruptcy, and he couldn't imagine how anyone would give him any money after he had so spectacularly failed. And then he met Liam. Dale had taken to spending much of the money he was making as a workman at a tavern downtown. He usually sat by himself, absently watching whichever sporting event was on the television behind the bar. Liam sat down next to him one night, complaining about his own life, how his old man had borrowed the money he had been saving for a down payment on a house for what he claimed was a medical expense. His father took the money and disappeared. Liam's wife left him shortly after that, and a friend got him the job working for the local police department. Their gripe sessions became a daily occurrence. Some nights they would stay until the place closed, wondering what they were doing wrong, what made them different from the millionaires, from the people for whom it seemed so easy. Based on their experiences, the answer was obvious. The winners in life were all crooks. They were the kind of people who just took what they wanted, what they deserved. What Dale and Liam needed to do was stop being suckers and start being takers. Inevitably, the conversation would take a turn. They conceived of various plots to do just that, to just take what they wanted, intercept cash coming from or going to an armored car, grab the loose gems from the back of a jewelry store, rob a bank. Dale never took these fantasies too seriously. There were nights when he and Liam would be so drunk that it almost made sense to Dale. Why not? People got away with stealing from others all the time. That's why there was insurance. Then one evening, Liam brought a guest. The guest had no name and wore dark glasses and a hat. Dale suspected that the man was disguising his voice, too. Liam called him the mastermind. The reason for his subterfuge became clear. He had a plan. A plan to rob a bank. It was foolproof, he claimed, but it required a team. Two people on the bank and a third who could manage the response to the silent alarm. There was a flaw in the system the mastermind had uncovered. The bank had all the sensors and alarms a responsible financial institution should have, but the bells that rang in the bank could be easily circumvented. The alarm would still be triggered, and the hard line to the police station would still be activated, but the ear-splitting ringing that was designed to scare the burglars away would remain quiet. All it would take to give the burglars time to break into the safe would be to intercept that silent alarm in the station and prevent the police from taking immediate action. And Liam, as a police officer, was in a position to do just that. Dale was reluctant. He had no idea how to break into a bank vault, but the man behind the dark glasses assured him he had access to all the equipment and know-how required to do the job. Dale's construction experience would be all he needed. It was just a matter of employing tools he was already familiar with in a specific manner. The mastermind left them. Dale pressed Liam about the stranger, but Liam was hesitant, perhaps fearful, about revealing anything about the man except that he seemed to be well-connected and knew the ins and outs of the Danville Bank and the police department intimately. Dale wasn't sure what to think. All those evenings Liam and he had kicked around grand schemes were just far enough on the other side of fantasy as to not to be something he needed to take seriously. But now there was a real plan, an opportunity to give an outlet to his feelings, to make right the wrongs that had been done against him. But could he really do something like that? Rob a bank? Over the next week, Liam slowly pushed Dale to consider the plan. It was the perfect crime. Every angle had been considered. The mastermind had inside information that would make it well worth the risk. Eventually, Dale agreed to move forward with the plan, but he still had one reservation. He didn't know the mastermind, and he wasn't sure he was comfortable breaking into the vault with someone whose name he didn't even know. Liam told Dale that he didn't have to worry about that. The man in the hat wasn't going to be a part of the execution of the plan at all. Dale was confused. Liam was responsible for diverting the silent alarm at the police station. Who was the other bank man going to be? You trust that lady of yours, don't you? Liam asked. Dale was stunned. How could Liam think he would risk involving Maureen in something like this? But then again, who else could he trust? Maureen had met Liam previously. They had dinner together a couple of times, and on one occasion Liam had brought a date as well. Liam had even joked on one occasion that he and Dale were spending all the time together planning a heist. Maureen sat and listened to the plan. The more Dale explained it to her, the more absurd it sounded to him. He expected her to laugh and accuse him and Liam of playing a bad joke on her. Instead, she considered it for a moment, then said to him, Yes, I'll help. Dale was shocked. Maureen had always been smarter than he was, but also more sensible and optimistic. The fact that she didn't even question the sanity of the idea took him by surprise. Marine interrogated Dale about the plan, about the mastermind, and the role Liam would be playing. In the end, her last question was simply, When? Are you sure? Dale had asked. Dale, she said to him, taking his hand. I believe in you, and I've seen you slipping away from me these last months since you lost your business. If this is what it takes to get you back, then yes, I'm sure. But I have one condition. What? Afterward, we leave this town. We go somewhere else, somewhere new, where we can have a fresh start. I want to have a family, with you, she said to Dale. Will you promise that we'll go as far away as we can? China? he asked, jokingly. Well, maybe Maine, she answered, with a smile and then a kiss. It was at that moment that Dale thought his life was finally back on the right track, but then it had turned into a complete train wreck. Fifteen years of his life, and all of Maureen's, was gone. And now here he was again, following the plan of the man who had led his life so astray. But what if it was true? What if it was Maureen the boy was talking to? And what if she could tell him where she had put the money? Maybe she wanted him to find it, to get that fresh start they had talked about. If nothing else, maybe he could tell her, He was sorry. Dale waited another half hour before making his way down the wooded hillside toward the house. There was only a sliver of a moon in the sky, but it was enough to negotiate his path through the trees. When he got to the yard, he walked slowly and quietly to the back of the house. He didn't head for the door. Despite being somewhat remote, everyone kept their doors locked these days. But Dale knew something the foremans didn't. The high, narrow window in their pantry that they didn't bother to replace when they renovated the old farmhouse, had a latch that was fairly easy to undo from the outside with a thin blade. He approached the window. When he was a teenager, it was easy for him to squeeze through the skinny opening, but he should still be able to wriggle inside. It turned out he didn't need the knife he had brought with him to unlock the window. The latch wasn't closed. But the window didn't open as easily as he had expected. It had been painted shut. Dale carefully cut through the hardened latex until his blade could move easily between the entire edge of the casing. Then he slowly pushed up on the sash with increasing pressure. The window didn't move. Perhaps they had painted it shut on the inside as well. He tried again, pressing his thumbs on the underside of the top rail of the bottom sash. It didn't move. He looked closer at the upper sash, noting that it was a double-hung window. Perhaps lowering the top part of the window would work better than trying to raise the bottom. His blade once again sliced through the paint, sealing the sash to the frame. Then he pulled on the outside rail, slowly applying more and more pressure until he felt like he was hanging on it with his full weight. The window snapped free with a crack. Dale lost his grip and tumbled to the ground. In his ears, it sounded like a truck had crashed into the house. He stayed on the ground, unmoving watching the upstairs windows to see if any lights came on. None did. He rose to his feet and put his face to the opening he had created in the pantry window and listened. There was no sound, no footsteps, no curious voices. The occupants of the house remained undisturbed. Dale breathed a sigh of relief. He briefly considered trying to free the bottom sash so he could more easily enter through the window, but he didn't want to chance making any more noise. He looked around and saw a couple milk crates by the door to the back porch. He grabbed one and set it below the pantry window. He slipped off the knapsack in his back and climbed up onto the sill on his knees. There was enough light for him to see that there was still a shelf right below the window, but it was covered with boxes of cereal and other food. He reached inside with his gloved hand, pulling the boxes out, and dropped them to the ground outside the window as quietly as he could. Once it was clear, he dropped his knapsack through the opening and stepped up onto the sill with one foot and lifted his other over the sash and inside onto the shelf. From there, it was a matter of contorting his body through the opening slowly and carefully, an inch at a time, until he was in the pantry, standing on the shelf with both feet and hanging onto the edges of the window frame. He lowered one foot to the floor, then the other. He pushed the window closed, but then remembered that he had left the food boxes outside If he had time, he would take care of that. No need to make the police's job any easier. His main concern was to make sure he didn't leave any trace of himself behind. He noticed he had left some dark smudges on the shelf under the window. Shoe prints. He found a roll of paper towels and a spray cleaner and wiped it down, then cleaned the bottoms of his shoes and carefully returned everything back where he found it. The pantry door threatened to squeak as Dale pulled it open. A little upward pressure on the knob shifted the weight of the door enough to prevent any sound. If he had thought through the plan more carefully, he would have brought along a can of WD-40. But he was past that now. Dale stepped into the kitchen. The foremans had completely redone the entire room. Gone were the Formica counters, chipped cabinets, and old, outdated appliances. In their place was granite and stainless steel, and cabinets with glass panes in the doors. It looked nice the kind of kitchen Maureen had always dreamed of having. He paused and looked around, peering into the shadows. Maureen, are you there? He asked. If you can hear me, if you're here, give me a sign, please. I miss you so much. He waited for a reply, but none was forthcoming. He had sincerely hoped that if her ghost was here, she would be waiting for him, and he could apologize and explain but there was nothing. His fantasy of seeing her spectral form in the old house, being able to talk to her and find out where the money was so he wouldn't have to do what Liam had convinced him was necessary, turned out to be just that, a fantasy. I'm sorry, Maureen, he whispered, then crossed into the living room and moved silently to the stairs. He kept to the left side of the steps leading to the landing, knowing for many a late night sneaking up to Maureen's room when they were kids how to avoid the creaks and groans of the old house. The boys' room was easily identifiable by the neatly lettered sign taped to it reading, No girls allowed. That means you, Daisy. It was ajar. Dale waited a couple of minutes, making sure his presence hadn't alerted anyone. Liam had assured him there were no pets in the house. From his knapsack, Dale pulled out a full respirator mask and slipped it over his face. Then he took out a bandana and a dark brown glass bottle. He opened the bottle and soaked the cloth with its contents. Armed with the chloroform-soaked rag in one gloved hand, he gently pushed open the door to Danny's bedroom with the other. Maureen didn't sleep. At least, she didn't think she did. At the very least, she didn't dream. And why should she? Wasn't dreaming something her physical body did? But it didn't matter. Since the passage of time didn't affect her the way it did when she had a body that needed food and sleep, Waiting the hours between when the foremans went to sleep and woke up felt like the blink of an eye. She was never tempted to wander, even though she now knew she could do so without losing her connection to Danny. She simply waited in a corner of the boys' room for him to wake up in the morning. She didn't have the same senses she did when she was alive. She didn't hear with ears or see with her eyes. It was almost as if she relied on other people around her to lend her their senses, though she was still aware of her surroundings when there was no one around. When Danny fell asleep, Her perception of the world dimmed, so when the door to his room slowly opened, she didn't notice it at first, but there was something stirring in her consciousness, a presence. Then it became clear to her, there was someone in Danny's room. It wasn't Greg or Marcia, she knew what they felt like, but it was someone familiar. All she could perceive at first was a large, dark shape creeping toward Danny's bed. Danny, she shouted, Danny, wake up! Whoever had broken into the house and into Danny's room didn't hear her, which wasn't surprising. Only Danny had that ability. But could Danny hear her when he was asleep? So far, he hadn't even stirred. Danny, you have to wake up. There's someone in your room. Wake up, Danny. Call for your parents. Scream. Danny shifted in the bed, turning from his side to his back. He yawned, but his eyes remained closed. The figure in the room stopped waited, then moved closer. Danny! Maureen screamed with all her might. Wake up! Wake up! Danny's eyes fluttered, then opened. Suddenly Maureen saw what he saw. A monster reaching toward him, two large round eyes in its face, and in place of a mouth, an insect-like appendage. Scream, Danny, as loud as you can! Maureen shouted. The boy sucked in a breath to do just that. But as he did, the monster covered his mouth with something in his hand, a cloth of some kind. Danny managed to struggle a bit, but his scream was smothered, then his eyes closed, and his body went limp. The monster waited a few seconds more, then removed the cloth, shoved it into a plastic bag, and tucked it away in a pocket. He lifted the respirator up and away from his face. It was Dale. The name was filled with so many feelings and memories, so many emotions— but not one of them, the fear she felt right now. Why was he here? What was he doing to Danny? Dale looked around and grabbed a pair of slippers beside the bed. He pulled back the blanket Danny was sleeping under, picked up the boy easily, and draped him over his shoulder. Dale, please, whatever you're doing, stop, Marine begged. But Dale didn't hear her. He made his way out of the room to the stairs, then slowly descended, keeping to the quiet side of the steps. Of course, Dale would know about that. This had been their house before. Her thoughts shifted to Danny. Where was Dale taking him? Why was he taking him? Should she follow them? Please, someone, hear me. He's taking Danny. You have to wake up. But no one heard her. The lights upstairs didn't come on. Danny's parents didn't wake, nor did his little sister, Daisy. Maureen sobbed as she watched Dale carefully sneak into the kitchen with Danny's limp body slung over one shoulder. She knew from her experience tracking down the parapsychologist Greg had called that she should be able to find Danny just by thinking of him. But she wasn't going to take that chance. She decided she was going to follow them, find out where Dale was taking Danny, then find some way to communicate with someone. If she could talk to Danny, there must be other people she could talk to. There had to be. Dale stopped when he reached the back door. He stared at the keypad on the wall. There was an alarm system on the house. He looked at it for a moment. The screen was blank, but there was a single red LED glowing in the upper right-hand corner. While in prison, he had listened in on the conversations between the inmates, swapping tips and tricks for breaking and entering, among other crimes. For many inmates, their time incarcerated was an opportunity to earn the equivalent of a master's degree in larceny. Some alarms were true deterrents, but others were mere window dressing. This one looked like one of those do-it-yourself systems. The bad news was that it was likely connected to the alarm company using a cellular connection. The good news was that it was designed to keep people out, and Dale was already in. Lucky for him, the foreman said not thought to put a window sensor on the small pantry window they had painted shut. Maybe he could go back out the way he came in, but that meant he would have to somehow lift the boy through the window and lower him to the ground. That didn't seem very realistic. The kid was small, but the longer Dale held him on his shoulder, the heavier he got. He carried the boy back out to the living room and laid him down on the sofa. Danny didn't stir. Dale didn't know exactly how long the chloroform would last, and he didn't want to risk giving the boy another dose. He went back into the kitchen and studied the keypad. He pressed one of the numbers and the display lit up. The word armed showed up on the screen. He looked around to see if the foremans were careless enough to leave their code nearby. Written on a sticky note by the keypad or maybe stuck on the refrigerator or tucked in a nearby drawer. He came up empty. Then Dale located the pair of small white rectangular boxes at the top of the back door. The smaller one stuck to the door itself was a magnet and the larger piece was the actual sensor. As long as they were lined up, the system was happy. But if someone were to open the door while the keypad was armed... Unless the disarm code was entered within 60 seconds, an ear-splitting siren would sound and a call would be made to the police. He inspected the sensor. The cover of the large piece came off easily so the battery could be replaced. Dale didn't know what would happen if the sensor suddenly lost power, but he assumed it would result in the same condition as if the door had been opened. The magnet was simply stuck to the door with double-sided foam tape. Dale gave it a little wiggle. As cheap as it looked, it was stuck on fairly well. He looked around, then remembered one of the drawers he had opened looking for the disarm code was a junk drawer, filled with odds and ends and various tools. One of them was a pocket saw. He grabbed it and a roll of duct tape. Dale placed a strip of tape across the sensor and the magnet to hold him in place while he used the hacksaw-like blade to cut through the adhesive pad. He soon realized it was also fastened with a screw. The screw was behind the battery, so he had to keep sawing through the metal as well but eventually the blade cut through the last bit of adhesive holding the sensor in place. He glanced at the keypad. The display had gone dark again. The red light was still shining bright, but there was no alarm. Dale wrapped some more tape around the sensor and its magnet, then tucked them into the junk drawer along with the tools he borrowed. He unlocked the back door and pulled it open. Nothing happened. He let out the breath he had been holding and started to depart before remembering that he was about to leave behind what he had come for. The boy was laying in the same exact position Dale had left him on the sofa. Dale put his ear to the boy's mouth, relieved to hear breath sounds. He had spent a lot more time in the house than he had planned on, and half expected to see the rest of the family groggily coming down the stairs for breakfast. Outside it was still dark. Dale lifted the boy back over his shoulder and carried him through the kitchen and outside. He gently closed the door, then made his way through the screened-in back porch and out into the yard. He froze when he heard footsteps. Someone was dragging something across the yard. Had they seen him? Slowly, Dale turned toward the sound. Red eyes glinted back at him in the moonlight. A family of raccoons had come to claim the treasure trove of food Dale had left behind when he crawled in through the pantry window. Dale took a step toward them and they grabbed the boxes in their mouths and scurried off into the trees. Once they were gone, he waited another minute to make sure one last time that he hadn't woken anybody put the milk crate back where he found it, then started into the woods toward the spot a quarter mile away where he had parked the car Liam had gotten for him. Maureen couldn't believe this was the same Dale she had loved. He was older, that much was obvious, but there was also something very different about the way he acted. The Dale she knew was compassionate. Kidnapping a child was not something he would ever consider doing. What had happened to bring him to this point? And where? Was he taking Danny? Thank you for listening to Afterlife, a rainy day investigation on the Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs fiction podcast. Remember to subscribe, share, rate, and review not only this podcast, but the novel you are currently listening to. The links to Amazon, Audible, and Goodreads are in the description for this episode. You can sign up for the Insomniacs newsletter at bedtimestories.studio and get a free bookmark. And if you want to know more about the Rainy Day Investigation's Paranormal Mystery Book Series, visit RainyAndDay.com. That's D-A-Y-E. dot com. You can find out more about the host of Bedtime Stories for Insomniacs at richhosick.com. Thanks again, and all the very best.